1939, Father Maximilian Kolbe, a Polish Franciscan priest, friar, and scholar, had had a pretty successful career. He'd earned a PhD in Rome. He'd established monasteries in Poland, Japan, and India, and started a radio station. However, on September 19, 1939, the Nazis captured the city he was living in during their invasion of Poland and arrested him. Kolbe had an easy way out. The Nazis, recognizing Kolbe's German ancestry, invited him to sign a document called the Deutsche Folkliste. This document would have given him the same rights and privileges as other German citizens. He refused to sign it. By early 1941, the Nazis had had enough and shut down the monastery. The Gestapo arrested Kolbe and by May had transferred him to Auschwitz. In July, a prisoner escaped the camp. Out of vengeance, the camp commander picked 10 men to be starved to death in an underground bunker. When one of them cried out, my wife, my wife, Kolbe offered to take his place. Kolbe and three others survived for two weeks. By that time, the guards wanted the bunker emptied, so they killed the men by lethal injection. The story is that when the guards came, Kolbe calmly raised his left arm, waiting for death. He died on August 14, 1941. The man he saved survived and was present at Kolbe's beatification and canonization. In Colby's story, we see two examples of solidarity. In the first, Colby could have taken refuge in his German ancestry. By signing the document, he would have enjoyed the privileges offered to any German citizen. He likely would have survived the war. But instead, he chose solidarity with the enemies of the Third Reich. Solidarity with the Slav, with the Jew, with the disabled, and with all those deemed subhuman. Solidarity plays a vital role in our story today. Esther, a Jewish girl, has been made queen by the Persian king Ahasuerus after a ludicrous beauty contest proposed by the king's advisors. Beauty contest. If you want to know more, just read the whole book. It takes 45 minutes. It's a, it's kind of, it's a story filled with reversals. A lot of it seems kind of ridiculous sometimes, really. But parts of it are laugh-out-loud found funny. So Esther wins this beauty contest. Esther does this by hiding her ancestry on the advice of her cousin Mordecai. But all is not well at court. Mordecai has made a powerful enemy at court in the king's chief minister, Haman, by refusing to bow to him. And instead of plotting to just kill Mordecai, Haman decides to exterminate Mordecai's people as well. He gets the king to issue an irrevocable decree permitting the Persian citizenry to kill every single Jew in the empire. This brings us to our reading. Mordecai has just learned of the plot, and he puts on mourning clothes and ashes, wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He's making a scene out there on the street. And Esther hears of this through her maids, 
And she seems embarrassed by his behavior. She first sends him proper clothes so he could actually come into the palace, but he refuses to do that. He refuses to stop crying out. So Esther sends Hathak, a eunuch, to find out what's happening. There's some back and forth to this conversation, but the crux is this. The time has come for Esther to act. Whatever the danger is in going to the king unannounced, whatever the risk to her person in pleading for the life of her people, she must act in solidarity with them. Indeed, Mordecai tells her that refuge in privilege is not an option for her. After all, Esther is only queen now because the previous queen was kicked out. Her privilege is extremely fragile. In Mordecai's famous words, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. Esther takes the risk of going to the king unannounced, and he receives her. Knowing the king's volatile temper, she acts with cunning, getting the king and Haman together at a banquet where she reveals all to the king. Haman is foiled, the Jews successfully defend themselves. To this day, Jews celebrate their day of their deliverance in the holiday of Purim, a day of laughing, dancing, and especially eating and drinking. Especially drinking, from what I hear. So Esther is a good story. Esther acts in solidarity with her people. But there's something odd about it. You notice anything about this reading? Anything kind of weird? There and in the rest of the book, God is not mentioned once. Not once in Esther is God mentioned. The only other book of the Bible that does this is the Song of Songs. Divine action is subtle. Done through human agents. Mordecai's wailing and pleading. Esther's cunning. Even the king's blustering and blundering. The closest we get to a mention of God is when Mordecai says that help for the Jews will come from another quarter if Esther does not act. By the way, the word for another quarter, ha-makom, is one of the names of God in Judaism. But this seems to be the way that God usually chooses to act in our world. God often acts through human agents, through people, through physical means. The story of the Incarnation, after all, is a story of God's ultimate solidarity with humanity and, by extension, the whole cosmos. God comes down to us, not in God's strength, power, majesty, or might, but in humanity's weakness. When God in Christ was born, he wasn't born to a powerful family, but to a young mother who became pregnant out of wedlock. God in Christ took on human flesh, not as a superhuman demigod, not like Superman or Hercules, but as fully human, subject to all of its indignity, pain, and decay, subject even to death. God in Christ empties himself of his divine privilege of equality with God, and dwells with us poor, desperate sinners. By identifying with the most vulnerable with, among humanity, 
Christ is in full solidarity with us, especially in our weakness. Esther's story is then a foreshadowing of Jesus' story. Esther lays down her privilege for the sake of her people. She truly is a forerunner of the Christ. But what Esther did for her people, Christ does for us all, for you and for me. And while Esther does not have to die, Christ did die for us and for all. To break the chains of sin and death, to reconcile us with God and with each other. And because Christ has acted in solidarity with humanity, with you and me, we are free to act in solidarity with each other. So much of our public discourse is driven by fear. So much problem solving is centered around how we can protect ourselves, financially, physically, in every other way. And while our safety to grow and thrive is important, it is not the only thing that matters. There's also our neighbors thriving to consider. If we approach our lives as a zero-sum game where if you win, I lose, and vice versa, our lives will be miserable. We'll fall tragically short of God's intentions for us. We'll always and only be focused on ourselves, shortcutting everything that makes for genuine well-being. Because we are only well if our neighbors are well, too. We only have shalom if our neighbors have shalom, too. The Apostle Paul said it best. If one part of the body suffers, all suffer with it. Whether or not we are aware of that suffering is unimportant. The fact is that as you and you go, I go. And as I go, you go. We're siblings in Christ. Maximilian Kolbe understood this. God help us continue to understand it too. Let's pray. Almighty God, your Son Jesus Christ did not regard his equality with you as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on our humanity with all that entailed. As he was and is in solidarity with us, empower us by your Spirit to be in solidarity with others. Break the walls that keep us siloed in our own concerns. Remind us that we only have your shalom as a community rooted in you. In the name of Christ, through the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.